Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. You know that sound? It is the Unfiltered Band, another episode of Unfiltered coming your way. This right here, episode 75. You can jump on the Revolution at Casey Stern on Twitter, get in the Twitter bio, and hit the YouTube channel. And of course, subscribe along the way and listen if you aren't already on Apple, Spotify, everywhere you get your podcasts. And thank you, Unfiltered Band. As I'm losing my voice. I'm getting uh, all verklempt here because I'm uh, reuniting with uh, a longtime friend and one of the best people in the game and a lot of uh, experience during this time of year as we get, uh, whether you're in meaningful September games or postseason push, uh, he's been through it and he's got pictures of it behind him. Uh, hello, Ned. How are you, sir? Hey, hey. Good, Case. How are you? I'm doing great, man. So first of all, so so for people who, you know, wonder what is it like after you don't have to write lineups on napkins and you don't have to have meetings and pre-series meetings and team meetings and all of it? Like, what are you doing and, and how much are you enjoying your relaxation right now? Uh, to be honest with you, I, I really enjoy it. And, you know, okay, so there's a couple, you know, there's a couple of things. Um, you know, when I retired, we had lost 100 games burnt out so I mean I was ready you know to just sit and catch my breath um, um, were managers uh, 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 you know wish they were still in the game but you know interesting this time of year but I don't feel a tug or a pull you know to be a part of it somebody told me one time that when you retire you better retire to something and not from something uh, I've got a five eight, 500 acre farm here that keeps me busy every single day. I do and things that I, I like to do. So um, it's if I feel, feel like doing something, I, I get up and do it. I'm up before the sun comes up. Uh, and then if I don't feel like doing it, I sit in a chair and I'm alive. How much if from if people don't realize, and we've talked about this over the years, but. You get 18 days off. You're away from your family for you know, six months because even when you're at home, you're locked in. You're going to games. You're at the ballpark early every day. How much more are you just like grateful for just even those those odd random moments with the family where you're like, hey, if I was still doing this and I loved it, but if I was still doing this, there's no chance I'd be able to have this hour to sit out on the porch or FaceTime the grandkids or any of that kind of stuff. How much are you enjoy just that aspect of it? Oh, I mean, it's great. My grandkids are here every weekend. They come up just about every weekend. And, um, you know, the interaction with them, we didn't, you know, I'd get to see them once a year or time because I would leave here the first of February and I wouldn't get home till the middle of October. Sometimes I wouldn't get home till November. So, um, you, you know, you just had to kind of, the door here just place and forget about it and just go take care of your business but you know that's when I think she understood that um, he, you know I only have so much RAM in my head to go uh, to leading <laughs> a baseball team she was really really good with the stuff that went along with the family but you know I think my boys all played baseball my oldest you know was a really really good baseball player and i got to see him play like twice you know, you know seniors and ended up they were the 
national champions their junior year, and I, I didn't get to see a game. And, and state champ or backup runner-up state champions is senior year, and I got to see two games. Miss when uh, when your life is involved with baseball. You know, there's a thing about managers who like if you manage a game, you manage every game. So a lot of them, you can't watch games sometimes afterwards immediately because even contemporaries of yours, you're thinking, I would have done this. I would have done it because it's just your nature. Is, does any of that still exist when you watch a game? Can you enjoy a game now or are you not at that point yet? No, I enjoy not watching games. I don't, I mean, I don't feel a tug to watch them. And I, I, I don't think I've watched too many at a time since I retired and I'll watch you know a couple innings and um you know I'll try uh because I understand you know a lot of the moves that you make are really well thought out you may have a pitcher that it's his spot and you put him in and you know he gives up four runs I mean it's just it doesn't so you know I kind of came to terms with that early but um I don't I don't really pay too much much attention to, to baseball right now. I get up in the morning. I look at the MLB uh, website. Uh, you know what's going on. I'm I am intrigued with Albert Pujols and his run. I'm intrigued with Judge. Uh, you, you know what he's doing. I I, I love watching the, the the Mets and the Braves their their run and their competition together. And um, you know I'm impressed. You know that to. to really get in and understand I, I just read the top of the news and i'm gone too much <laughs> going on and just kind of check those highlights and move on yeah you, you mentioned the Mets and the braves and i want to hit a bunch of things but i, I want to start there because you know you and i both live down here obviously i've got the hat on you know my my long time love for this team and i the 90s when you were sitting there and you were on Bobby's staff, that was such a great time for that rivalry in this game. It was great for this sport. I'm so happy that it's back. I mean, all the angst between the fans and all of that, it's a little bit of a different tenor because, you know, whereas like Bobby and Bobby may have, you know, not been hanging out ever uh, outside of the togetherness that everybody experienced the game after 9-11, you know, there, there was real angst there. And, you know, Snit is such a super nice guy and Buck's so well-respected. It's a little different here. But yeah. how good is it to see for somebody who saw that rivalry firsthand that now the Braves and the Mets are a thing again fighting for a division? I, I think it's phenomenal. I do. I just, you know, go back on those times and, you know, remember the how much fun it was to go to New York and how much fun it was for New York. The change meant something. You woke woke up tingling, you know, knowing that you're going to the park to play the Mets. And, and back in those days with Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz, and, you know, Avery and those boys, you were going to kick their ass. And it was one of them good feelings, you know. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, to see what they're doing back, back and forth in the run. I mean, it breaks for 10 games out at some point, you know, they're neck and neck. So I just think that it's uh, – that it's a real interesting, really Mets fan and a Braves fan. You have such a tie to, and there's a number of cities, but because even, even certainly during your time, and I had a lot of success in Milwaukee, get such a tie to Atlanta. When you think back to your relationship now with the city of Kansas City, which will live on way past either of us here on this earth, 
how soon after getting there did you realize that that was a city you could build a relationship like that with, Ned? Because clearly winning at the level you did, which we'll get into, has a large part of that. But was that a city that you knew well? Was it a city that you kind of had to talk to people and get a sense, hey, is this a place I want to be? Give me give me a sense of your first feel in the building of that relationship between you and the city of Kansas City. Because I saw it firsthand. When I played in the big leagues in uh, the early 80s, Kansas, they had those great rivalries with the Yankees and George Brett. And they were, uh, you know, every when went into that city, it was a knowledge city about baseball they were passionate about baseball and the players and i saw firsthand back then um but when i went in there of course you know we had the the, the organization had lost you know a, a lot for, for people that were really kind of fed up with losing um they really wanted to uh turn, turn around and they were very impatient to do it and Trying to explain to them, look, this is going to be the pretty good players that you know are going to be able to compete for a championship. They had heard it before, and it had Beltran and guys like that. And as soon as they get good, they ship them off. And so they were very, very cynical about betting. And it wasn't until you know 2014, uh, you know, really, at the, you know, we we made a push and and ended up not. Making the playoffs, but we took it all before we got eliminated. So the next year, um, you know, there, it started to be a little more, and it was finally generated there. Going into the last game, we, we were a game out. We, we didn't know if we were going for the division or, or, or be the wild cards. So, you know, it was a very, very tight, tight right behind us 100%. But after that wild card game, it just went, went to a whole new level. Yeah, you know, obviously you're, and I, I've said this to you many times over the years, but in covering it and being around you, the symmetry of of um, an organization is so important. People don't pay attention to it enough. What you and your staff, and Dayton and his staff, and the connection that you guys had in you know a common goal, but understanding how to communicate with each other, it, it's not an accident that both of you were. It's like the Bill Walsh tree with John Sherholz, right? So it's it's not accidental. Or with Bobby Cox, how much? Did the two of you learn from that? And how much do you think that that was a huge key that, that both of you in different ways came from an organization down here in Atlanta that knew how to win? I think that was important. You know, Case, when you really sit down, I think the problem um, that you run going into Kansas City is, is the idea. And people, uh, you, you know, I get the sense that fans think that if you don't win, and the problem that you run into is, and this is absolute truth, you will ever. So, so when you don't have talent, it doesn't matter what you do. You're never going to win. Our fans, they don't, they don't see that. They want you to win. They don't care about your talent level. They don't care about your talent. You know, all they want to do is see you win. So when you kind of get there as a really talented group of players and you have to get them to a point where they can, that generally takes from the time they get to the big leagues two to two and a half years. And 
to be patient during that time is extremely difficult. So your skin to tune all, all that stuff out and try to keep the clubhouse insulated inside those guys to understand what their, their job is every single day. They've got talent, right? What's your job? And I would explain to them every, you know, every so often because they would push to be good sooner than they were ready to be good. And it was like, listen, here's the deal. Contract. And they would look at my head and they go, well, yeah, it's a contract. I said, say, I don't know. Okay, here's what your contract says. Your contract says, I pay you X amount of dollars for what? Does it say 40 home runs? Does it say 120 wins as a pitcher, 200 strikeouts, and a ERA under two? Uh, batting average is 300. It doesn't contract. Simply states that we will pay you X amount of dollars for your very best. That's it. So what I need you to do is to go out, and get on that field, be prepared, be ready, very best effort. Not only me, your teammates, the fans, your family. Give us your very best effort every day. It comes with that. If it's an 0 for four with four strikeouts, if it's your best effort, you go home. And you go to bed. If it's for the eyes, we're all happy. But that once you, they start to understand what their job is, they start to relax a little bit. They start to produce a little bit, and all of a sudden they start winning a little more. So you get to the point where hey, you can compete. And there's a line. I mean, there's a line between developing. You get to that line where you're done developing. Then it's time to compete. Boom. You're changing gear. The whole focus is, is 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 a different focus. It's absolutely winning every, every day. You know why? Because you can't develop yourself to a point where you can compete, where you can be successful, and you can be productive. And uh, you know, fans understand that. And you know, they say, "Well, we you know we're tired of waiting." It's like virtue. They don't want to hear that. You have to have patience to be successful. Yeah, well, it, you know, it's it's so funny Especially because, well, and and Ed, I think the other thing is you had so many kids, right? So you've got a you're battling between, and and I go to 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 move specifically because I remember, you know, you had you know coaches that you know were were needing to be changed and replaced. Everybody's you know, getting on expectations of every player. And Mustaka seemed to be a guy already pinpointed, right? He gets sent down, he comes back. And you stuck with him. And, you know, some of the other guys like Haas, they were having consistent success where it probably was a little bit easier. But how much is that? Is that luck? How much of it is trust? I mean, tell me about the dynamic of that, because you got to be thinking as a human, well, geez, I need to get more out of this kid. But you don't know for sure that he's going to turn out to be a guy who could be a star in a postseason the way he was twice for you. How does how's that kind of whole thing work out behind the scenes? I don't know, Case. I knew, I did know that, that if we just let this kid work through these issues, uh, he played with such an edge, and it, it was such. He was so hard on himself when he. Or you knew if you could ever get him over that point that he was going to be good. Look, I kept telling Dayton one time, I mean, like I was nuts, you know. But early on, I'd say, look, we got. 
Escobar's going to be an all-star. Hosman's going to be an all-star. Moose is going to be an all-star. You know, I've started naming these guys. Wade Davis, he's going to be an all-star. You know, um, and he's going to, what, we're going to have a whole team all-stars? Well, you know, 15, we have seven or eight teams. You know, I, I don't know how I was able to do it, but I always could could judge that talent. And once I judged that talent, and, you know, it was getting to know them, what makes them tick, you know, their their, their competition level, their ability to um, – all these things kind of, you know, filtered in, into the equation that, that these kids were going to be special, and they all, they, they all turned out to be special. Last night uh, for the New York Mets, who were, uh, you know, right there neck and neck with the Braves now, Terrence Gore's an unbelievably important base. And it was eight years ago that he was doing that off John Lester for you in the wild game. And, and away you go with, I think it was Gordon, the big uh, homer. And, and that whole run began. When you're sitting there down seven to three, I think it was, against a guy who is your next, your, pretty much your neighbor, um, here for people who don't know, right? He lives right here, right. and you know, yeah. not only the person, the competitor, but this is one of the best big game pitchers of our time. And it would have been a successful season that if you lost that game to say, Hey, this is the next step, right? You still could have sold that. Take me back to what you're thinking in those moments, seventh inning down seven three to John Lester, and here comes Terrence Gore just basically just running circles around the bases to, to get you started. Yeah, it was that was a more than. Because we had, I don't think we'd beaten John Lester in like two years. And then uh, we get them out. It's the bottom of the seventh. And the, the guys run into the dugout. My mind's spinning. I'm looking at this. But I'm starting to hear a rumble in my ear down there. And it starts to get louder and louder and louder to the point where it caught my attention. And I looked just had all those guys down there in the corner, the whole team. And Moose was screaming, and there was one, this guy's not going to beat us. not tonight. He's not going to do it. Let's go. Let's go. He's not going to beat us. Let's go. That's not going to happen. Get on base. Get him over. Get him in. Let's go. He's okay, cool. They're fired up, right? They're still fired up. But, but all of a sudden, here we go. We ended up tying up the game. In the next inning, they take they take the lead. We tie it up. It's back all over, and we end up winning it in the twelfth inning. You kind of revisit that moment, and not only do we win the wild card game, we win the next seven games in a row. We sweep Anaheim um, in the American League at that point. We ended up sweeping uh, uh, sweeping the Baltimore Road, and you get back to that point. And I always said that, you know, with a group of guys. And the turning point is when they're ready to compete, they, they think that they can win. But there's a point where it gets into their heart, where they know in their heart, in their heart that they can win, and they know they're good. It's a different from thinking and knowing. And that ball game is where that switch clicked. And those boys went from thinking they were good to, and made a huge run on it. 
you know, there are certain, and you know, you, cause you had them down here, um, in Atlanta, when you're coaching, you had it with Zach, with Granky, um, and see some of those guys that you were, there are certain guys like Bumgarner where, you know, you don't say to yourself, well, you know, Hey, look, we can't beat the guy clearly, but you know, in the back of your mind that that game is about like, I can't, we can't let him get in the game. <laughs> matters. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think it was, right. I think you had Jay Guts, you had Guthrie, and I think it was Huddy, right? Who was on the other side, I believe. Um, in game- yeah, in game seven. How much was that the feeling before? Uh, nobody knew he would, because I, I say this, Ned, and, you know, n- not to bring up, you say, you won the World Series in the, the next year, so I don't feel so sore bringing it up for you. But that's the best pitching performance I've ever seen in person. I mean, I, I've never, in, in what that was, and I know in talking to Boach before the game, they really thought they could only get three innings out of him. And you're thinking maybe a fourth. He go five and two, whatever the hell it was. What, what was the thought process before that game when you knew Bumgarner was looming there? Um, before the game? Yeah. I, I, li- listen, I, I think I've told you, but in game five, we played game five in San Francisco and lost. Bumgarner shut us out, right? The eighth inning had like 105 pitches. So I'm thinking send them back out, send them back. And at that at that time, I, I don't know, two or three or four to nothing. And I'm back out. I want that pitch count way up. I don't want to see him again. So all of a sudden, here he comes. Comes back to the inning, throws 125 pitches. Well, in San Francisco, when you get done with the game, in order to do you've got to walk across the field because the tunnels uh, are full of pedestrians and fans. So I walked across the field and went. I got into the giant dugout, Madison Bumgarner just finished, and it was, you know, he turned around and walked away, and I said, hey, Madison, Madison, he turned around, he goes, and I just want to tell you, that was an awesome game you threw today, man. I mean, that was tremendous. That was, that Madison Bumgarner-esque, he goes, hey, man, I see you know your hunting videos. <laughs> yeah, I, I sure, well, maybe one day we can go hunting together. I was like, that's <laughs> He goes, well, that sounds I'd like it too. But anyway, congratulations. That was an awesome game. And then here it came out of my mouth. I am sure again. Right? And then, so I wasn't expecting him in game, game. So, you know, we've got, we've got our pitching matchup. We've got Jeremy Guthrie. If we can get three, we've got Wade Davis. We've got, you know, we've got guys that we feel. We get Herrera, the, who you brought. I think you brought Herrera in the fourth, right? Is that was that we did? We brought Herrera yeah. in the fourth, yeah. and Herrera was like why two two with one out, and I brought him in uh, to face Michael Morse. You know, with Herrera's fastball on third, he can strike him out, score side two two, hold it right there, and then I've got you know Wade for a couple, I've got Holland for a couple, and that you know my bullpen was so dynamic back then. A sacrifice fly to right field, and neither neither team scored again. But um, I wasn't really expecting when he came in. I'm like, okay, good. He threw 125 pitches. Let's get on him. I mean, I was full. And we actually had a point when he first came in where we, we got a guy on. Haas hit a middle. I think the panic dove for, flipped it to second. And, I mean, he just barely caught it. That had been 
first and third, and no telling what would have happened from that point. But, you know, when they sent him back out, and I'm not convinced. Even when Alex Gordon hit, you know, that ball, and he, he kept going, he had to hold him up. Salvi was up. Salvi hit a home run off him in game one. So I'm like, Salvi sees him good game. And when Salvi popped that game up, I mean, I was like, somebody hit me with a one, two, three. You know, I just, I was so convinced we were going to win. Um, but it was a historic performance by him. And, and, and oh, anything than that, I, we'd have two World Series rings. That's right. It was just, it was historic. I look, it's the best. I mean, you know, for all the uh, Greg and Glav and uh, some of these guys you could who have had you know better overall career. Nope, nobody put something like that out of the bullpen. Musina had one with the Yankees. There have been some out of the bullpen that are done, nothing like that. Um, that second year when you come in, the hunger because you didn't win it the first time, right? Especially is already set in place. I mean, so you've already you don't have to kind of do any of that. Did the season feel longer to get to that kind of postseason push again because the guys kind of wanted to all start at the end in game eight, if you will? I mean, how does that happen? Because I've always people don't talk about the human element of that. To me, it would be human element that I wouldn't not be able to. How do I take at bat by at bat when all I'm thinking is I got to get back there so we could start over and try and win the game this time? It, it is a de- definitely careful for that because I, I I experienced that every single year in Atlanta and we went to the playoffs every year and once spring training started I just wanted to get through the season because I'm like damn we got to go through this season to get there we knew we were that good and we knew that it was just a drudge of going through 162 games so I was prepared for that I knew that we had to to stay focused every single game because nobody was going to give us anything and and we did fairly easy until about the last series. And we had like a 13, 14 game lead. And but we were bad record, which gave us home field advantage. And we were battling Toronto. I I did not did not want to go to Toronto and and have them home field advantage. Play four games in Toronto and you know Jose Batista and the and the, the mm-hmm. Texas Rangers all the stuff going on there you know I mean it was just crazy the fans were crazy at that time and I wanted four games or four games in Toronto but our guys wanted they wanted to make sure they were healthy they wanted and they were ready to take like the last day or two off and I mean I was like no you can't Cannot we cannot field advantage? And they thought in their mind that they were so good they didn't care if they had home field advantage or not. They knew. So um, you know we ended up winning on the last day home field advantage, which uh, big deal for us. When you, you get to that World Series, your team had the you know it's funny because. The game at that point, even though it's not that many years ago, Ned, there wasn't even the outrage that there is now and has been the last couple of years for people to have more contact at the plate. It wasn't as bad then. We'll talk about shifts here in a second as it is now. And at the time, I think still everybody noticed that the best thing about what your lineup did was they got the bat on the ball 
And with those guys that you were going to face, including DeGrom, who, by the way, now seven years later has 86 strikeouts and four walks this year, which is pretty decent. Um, he he beats L.A. in game five. He's you know, got the rookie thing. You got Harvey. You got Thor and all of that. How much was your approach in the World Series that you had kind of the exact type of an offense that would give this team trouble because you were going to at least put the ball in play and give it a chance to do something good for you offensively rather than all the swings and misses those three guys had gotten up to that point? We knew that. You know, we, we knew that opposing managers, we would drive them crazy because they tell me we can't situation where we need a strike. We cannot. How did you get guys to do it? Now, I was just, you know, Dale Swain was just drilled in their head. Look, you know, when you face a good pitcher, the, the reason is let's get this pitch count up. Get the first good pitch that you can handle and hammer it somewhere. And and that's what they getting a good pitch and putting it in play. And when you put it in play, good things happen. And you know, it, it did. Our, our ability to put the ball in play was a huge, huge advantage for us. Mets system, you know, I, I'm looking at I'm looking at, uh, you know, DeGrom like, and, and Syndergaard and uh, uh, Max, who was, you know, really good. I'm like, geez, man, this is going to be good. And kept pushing for the Mets, kept pushing for the Mets, to, you know, when we were when we were playing for Mets. And I'm, I'm like, have you seen their pitching staff? And he, <laughs> you know, he said, but if you looked at the schedule, and I said, no, I Looked at the schedule. What are you talking about? And he goes, The schedule next year. And he goes, We're going to play, play the Mets and we're, we're going to beat them. And we open, open up at home against the Mets. They're, they're going to. And I'm thinking, like, Oh, that's a bit, bit of an omen. And uh, sure enough, I mean, amazing. The feeling after especially 14, we came so, so close. I mean, we had a lot of confidence. But when Alcides Escobar got up there, and hit the first pitch for an inside against the Thor, ball. right after all that talk against Cinder. It was. It, it, I think it was. It was Harvey the first, first night, then Degrom, and the okay. third night, and then Max. The Cespit, the Cespedes play in the outfield, which, which you know, I mean, he took a circuitous route to get to that ball. Yeah, that's right. But, but after one pitch, we're ahead one, one to nothing, and, and I mean, it just <laughs> it was really a a, a very confident feeling feeling at that time that we were going to be good. And, the, you know, no matter what, um, you know, we, we, we were going to find ways to score runs and our shutting them down. What's the most vivid memory you have from either winning it, the after winning it, you could take me from after the last out all the way through the parade in that offseason. What, what's the first memory or two that come to mind for you? Well, you know, for me, Casey, it was really weird. Um, because said and done, I was, I wasn't like jumping up and down and eh, I didn't celebration, you know, I had just felt a, a very strong, strong sense. You know, I, I just felt very good. We've been talking about this for our city for a long time that we, you know, the kids that could bring a championship to Kansas city and we'd finally done it. And I remember uh, the trophy and the guys were going crazy in the locker room. I went in my office and sat down and I looked up on my couch. And we just looked at each other and smiled. 
you know, I, I, and it was just a very strong, it, it wasn't, uh, you, you know, I had no idea what we had accomplished, but I felt good about that when um, we got on the bus early, we spent the night, we didn't get out of the stadium, the Mets crew guys kicked us out at five o'clock in the morning, they had had enough, they said, that's it, get out, right, it's like, we're done, they're turning lights out, and like, okay, right, <laughs> so we get on the bus, we go back to the hotel, our flight leaves like at 11, so we got on the bus at 10 o'clock, we, we had two planes, and we get on the plane, and I'm sitting on on the plane and my phone rang and I looked at it and it's and the only two people I ever have called me with no caller ID are Joe Torrey and Robin I figured it was Joe Torrey calling to congratulate me so I answered the phone and said hello and I said this is Ned Yost and he goes will you please hold for a call from the president of the United States I guess so All right well it was about you know Barack Obama calling to invite us to the White House talked to him for like 10 12 minutes and that was the first time I realized hey we might have done something really and you know and then when we got home it was totally nuts and then that's when you know I finally where it caught me so off guard and it was funny because um last year Braves won the World Series in Houston and they flew back the next day I called Brian Snicker congratulated him and I said, let me tell you something, pal. I said, your life just changed. And I said, you're going to find out as a manager, it's not going to be the same as it was before because now you're not just a manager. Now you're a winning manager. And that's it. that puts you to another level. And that was something I, I didn't really know. But uh, Bruce Bochy said at one time, I said, man, man I, I didn't really expect all this. Molly goes, yeah, it's the gift that keeps on giving. So. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you. You mentioned both, so you you guys both went out at the same time, right? At, at not that year, but obviously years later. And there are a lot of young managers. Which it, look, it's important for the game. And I also, you know, knowing them personally, a good people doc out in in L.A. and and Booney and some of the guys who have come in. But there is a generation still of guys right in your realm that were your contemporaries of yours that are still kicking at such a high level when Tito continuing to do what he does. And that team's in first place again. And Buck now with the Mets and Snit, who you mentioned a lifer in this sport, Dusty's got the Astros primed to maybe kind of have him have that moment to kind of, you know, cap his, how good do you feel for the manager fraternity that in all the new stuff the game has brought, that there are four of a bunch of guys I just mentioned who got their teams primed to go win a World Series who are right there, your contemporaries, not the guys who you managed once and now have you know, come up and been the new guy, like uh, Counts, who we love, obviously, in Milwaukee, for example. Right. You know, Case, I don't think people understand of uh, adapting that they had to do to get to this point. Because when we were young and we played, the game was totally different in the way that um, acted with your manager and your coaches uh, and the things that were expected from you as, um, you know, it's a whole new generation of player now in order to get through 
to them and to stay tuned in, you, you have to adapt because they're going to get to the point where they're going to tune you out. They're going to push you out. You have to be able to, you have to be able to understand. And, and, you know, I thought that, but I thought Joe Girardi was one of the smartest managers in the game, but that kind of just always never, never really seemed to be there, you know, uh, even though he's, um, and, and has a great baseball mind. You have to be able to adapt and any of today's player. They grew up different. Their 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 lives are totally different. We we grew up, and you have to be able to adapt, and you got to kind of give back a little bit, and be able to be a much better communicator that than our managers were with us and know what's going on. On. They want the truth, and you know, there's a lot to it. There's a lot of adaptation in order for them to maintain their success. And for that, I, I kind of take my hat off. And I know it's hard. You, you hear the old adage, "You can't teach an old dog new tricks." Well, yeah, yeah. These old dogs have learned new tricks. Successful. That's why they've got players that uh, are playing their hearts out for them. Is because they began today's player. And, uh, and today's system of play, uh, and, and that's a big. I want to hit you one more, <clears throat> one more. Excuse me before we, we wrap, because you saw and you're managing as the game. We mentioned, look, it changes a million ways, but the shift comes in, right? Fielders don't like it. You know, hitters hate it even more, especially if they're left-handed. Everybody's got to deal with it. Nobody's sure what to do. You know, is it paralysis by analysis? How do you use the information that you have? Did you think, now that we know that beginning next year, the shift is gone and you're going to have two guys on each side, did you think when it first came in that, hey, eventually the hitters will figure out how to beat this as a league? Or are you maybe on the other side not surprised that the league had to step in to get rid of it because it didn't seem like the hitters were going to, as a group, do enough to stop it from happening? From the onset, let's get rid of this because you look at you look at where the game had gone. Definite advantage for um, you know teams, uh, especially some guys that pulled. All of a sudden, you look now. All of a sudden, singles are are gone. You know, um, so when you lose singles, you start to lose strategy. You lose steal you lose the hit and run so it's just a sit back and swing 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 game i think the players would adapt the best player that i saw adapt was moose mike mustakis and he got to the point where he got so sick and tired of hitting in that shift he started hitting the ball all the other way and um he, he, he you know it paid for him I, to <clears throat> One time I put the shift on Albert Pujols, right? And, and Albert looked at the shift and, and had, had everybody pulled over to the pool me. Like this, like, what are you doing? Right? So he got in the box and bit Albert Pujols at this 12 years ago. Boom, he rips a base hit on the ground into right field. So it's like he's showing. So you shift me under take my Right? So we get up again, and all of a sudden, I shift to get out. 
Robert, I love it when you hit singles. You know, yeah. you are you're a home run hit every time. And then he quit. You know, he went back to being Albert Full. You know, I figured the psyche of the hitter uh, <clears throat> wouldn't change that, that much. And it, it, it's overdue. I think it needed to be gone. I think it's, it's going to create more offense. Hopefully, it's going to create, um, you know, we'll just see more action in the game. Ned, I, I can't thank you enough for doing this, man. It's so good to catch up with you. You know I love you. And uh, and keep enjoying that that uh, that serene life, sitting out there and en- enjoying the weather, which to me, I mean, you live in Atlanta more, much more than I have the last eight years. But this is the best weather. September for me is my favorite month here. I mean, this is this is when the weather is at its finest. So kick your feet up and, and enjoy yourself, man. Uh, we do. And I'm with you. September, October, my favorite time of year. I absolutely love it. It's just a special place to be. But um, get some Casper hot dogs. Are you, still, are you still eating a lot of hot dogs, or are you are you down on the hot I'm, dog intake? Look, that's a real source subject to bring up right now because every you know I go and I, I order about twenty five pounds or thirty pounds of Casper's hot dogs, and I eat them all right. Well, I call them. They're not shipping them out anymore because fuel prices are too high. Get oh. Delivery, so they're not shipping them anymore. They said maybe next year. So I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get Casper's hot dogs. What are you going to do? You're going to have somebody Georgia. go out there and grab them for you. You're going to have to. You can't DoorDash all the way from where are they made? Where where is where Casper? California. They're made in. in That's the long trip, Ned. I, 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 but I, I got my bro- I got a brother in California, but, but again, <laughs> UPS doesn't guarantee they make you, but they don't guarantee second day air and you'll get them four and five days later and by then they're they, they're short. not good you can't yeah, yeah so they're you, not good you kind of you kind of in a catch 22 so i'm just gonna have to i'm gonna withdraw for this winter and um you know hopefully make it through it you know i appreciate you man i appreciate this uh i'll hop back in we'll do this again and uh you can stay on board the unfiltered revolution at casey stern listen everywhere you get your podcast apple spotify and elsewhere episode 75 thank you for listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube